this week on the Backtable podcast. This is an excellent tool to treat something that previously was not very easily treated. And it's similar to like the nasal valve. People never looked for the nasal valve until they actually had a treatment for it. And now we I, I do the modified caudal on pretty much every patient to try to find patients that would potentially benefit. And the runny nose patient has always been kind of a patient that nobody wants to see because there's not really therapy for it. But now it's a patient that has a pretty good therapy that's an in-office procedure that patients can benefit pretty significantly from. So I just, I think it's a, an awesome opportunity to um, introduce this treatment for patients that previously had no significant treatment options. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Backtable ENT Podcast. We're a podcast that focuses on all things otolaryngology, and we've got a really great show for you today. Thanks for stopping by. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. Aaron Medical provides ENTs with advanced treatment options that provide lasting relief for patients with chronic nasal conditions. Fitting seamlessly into the office or OR setting, Aaron Medical's portfolio of non-invasive, temperature-controlled, radiofrequency products include Vivere for addressing nasal airway obstruction and Rhinair for chronic rhinitis. Learn more at aaronmedical.com. Now, back to the show. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Backtable ENT podcast. Uh, my name is Ashley Agan. I'm a general ENT in Dallas, Texas. And my name is Gopi Shaw. I'm a pediatric ENT. How are you doing today, Ash? Bonjour, Gopi. <laughs> bonjour, bonjour. <laughs> excited to be across the mic from you today. I know. Uh, and excited for our guest. Uh, it's a- timely to talk about rhinitis because I'm quite rhinitis-y today. So are you feeling it's it? fitting. Taking yeah. some notes for, my, for myself. The drip, maybe a clog, I don't know. <laughs> well, we have an awesome guest today. We have Dr. Stan McClurg. Dr. McClurg is a rhinologist practicing in Kansas City, Missouri at Ascentist Healthcare. He performs sinus and skull base surgery in the OR, as well as awake and office sinus surgeries and procedures. And he's here today to talk to us about chronic rhinitis. rhinitis. <laughs> Welcome to the <laughs> show, Stan. <laughs> hey, thanks for having me. I might talk about chronic rhinitis as well. But it was, it was, I was hoping we'll we were going to get that part uh, deleted, edited, but now we'll just keep it in. We'll keep it in. It's that French. It's those French classes kicking in. Right. <laughs> I didn't. I don't have my chest set, set up in the background this morning. Oh, you as mean you do like stand, that? So I don't have that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> get those extra uh, vibes to my brain. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about yourself, Stan. Yeah, so I am originally from Paola, Kansas. It's a small town just south of Kansas City. I uh, then went and did a chemical engineering um, bachelor program at K-State, Kansas State University. I then went to KU Med for medical school where I met my wife who is actually a OB-GYN at KU. She's the program director there. She'll be happy that I mentioned that. <laughs> and then we both went to the Ohio State University for residency. Oh, that's where my and, husband is from, Columbus. Oh, yeah? Yeah. That was a great time. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I actually, once you graduate there, you have to stay the or they will actually fire you. So. Oh. Uh, yeah. But once you marry into the family, you got to say the as well. So I, <laughs> I, I, I get it. <laughs> um, 
After that, I went to UNC in Chapel Hill and did a rhinology and skull base fellowship there. Afterwards, I moved back to Kansas City, and I am now part of a practice um, at Centist Healthcare, where we actually have 34 physicians in our group, and 13 of those are ENTs, and I'm the sole rhinologist for them. So it's a great practice. I love being in private practice, and I love even more being a rhinologist in private practice. Awesome. UNC's a rhinology powerhouse. That's pretty yes, awesome. Yes, they are. Yeah. yeah. I used to read a lot of Dr. Zanation's papers on all the pediatric skull-based stuff and the measurements. And so yeah, I, I was. Know. I didn't know him I personally, but well, I, I, <laughs> I met him once and I was like, I've read all your papers. <laughs> yeah. I probably did some of those measurements myself at some point as well. So you're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then uh, I got to work a little bit with Dr. Senior um, and Dr. Kimple on the recent CF guidelines. And, yeah. Uh, both, they were both amazing. They people. were great. Yeah. They were great. But, anyways, so shout out to the program there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, awesome. So you're going to talk to us today. We're, we're going to kind of focus the conversation on chronic rhinitis. And so um, just to kind of kick things off, maybe we can just kind of talk about what this looks like when these patients are, you know, coming to your practice and, you know, what symptoms there are and, you know, what questions you're asking, that sort of thing. Yeah. So I've actually found that um, the type of patients that are presenting with this has kind of shifted. Initially, it was patients that presented after everything else had been fixed. So like a patient with chronic sinus infection or allergies or something else, we'd fix all the other issues and then they'd still have this kind of pesky runny nose or post-nasal drip. So then we'd just throw epitropium and bromide at it and be done with it. And there's so many patients out there that have that issue, but they just kind of got, they just refilled every year and they continued with their atrovent nasal spray, but there was no other treatments for them. So that was kind of the initial patients that I was seeing and potentially doing procedures on. And then more recently, I've actually been getting patients sent directly to me for chronic rhinitis or post-nasal drip. It's, uh, you know, through word of mouth and a little bit of advertising and just people finding out that there is actually a treatment for runny, chronic runny nose and post-nasal drip that I'm getting people that present pretty much entirely just for that are already telling me what procedure they want done on them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Did um, the ipotropium work? On, yeah, on so so it actually works pretty well. Interesting fact: there's actually two different strengths out there. The normal one is the 0.06 percent, and then there's also a 0.03 percent. Um, some people are super sensitive; it can sometimes cause dry mouth and/or potentially even dry eye when you do the nasal spray. Or people will complain that it dries them out too much. But Interestingly, um, and you know, I'll probably talk about this a little later, but I actually use that as a criteria to see if they'll benefit from an in-office procedure such as Ryanair. If they respond to those nasal sprays, I find that they have a much higher likelihood of responding to the procedures. And these are patients that are, you know, ha- have a runny nose, but that maybe do have allergies or don't have allergies or how do you like think of it like as you're categorizing patients because when i think rhinitis it's like inflammation in the nose right yeah like from all causes maybe and then you kind of like divvy it out from there yeah so actually the definition of chronic rhinitis is 
constant runny nose for greater than four weeks. So it can be from multiple different sources. One study showed that of the patients that have chronic rhinitis, about 43% have allergic rhinitis, and then non-allergic is about 23%, and then there's a mixed varietal in there of about 34%. So initially, as I was working these patients up, I wasn't really thinking of allergic rhinitis as a potential patient that could be fixed with a procedure like this. So I was kind of filtering out all the allergy patients and sending them off to allergy. But more recently, I found out that you can actually treat the allergic rhinitis patients with a procedure like this as well. So you don't really have to filter all them out, but it's nice to do a little uh, initial workup to try to find which category they're in. If they're a chronic rhinitis, not a, a non-allergic or a mixed rhinitis, then you know, get allergy testing to try to figure out what allergic component they have. Do all the people with chronic rhinitis, not all the people, I guess, what percent also just have a clogged nose too? Do those go hand in hand or is this just, you've already helped them open their, you know, it's not a blockage, but it's just they're runny. Yeah, I would, I would say probably about half and half, like uh, probably about 50% of patients will present and say, I have a runny nose, but I also have nasal obstruction. But then there's these other patients, about half of them that say, I only have a runny nose, I can breathe fine. And I found that uh, kind of the, the older patient, you know, the classic old lady with the tissue in her hand that goes through like five boxes of Kleenex a day, that's the patient that usually doesn't complain of nasal obstruction. It's more just the chronic runny nose. And I think, you know, when they're at the bridge club, they all have tissues in their hands. So they, they think it's like normal, it's normal. you know? Yeah. <laughs> So what about you have your patients who have like a like a vasomotor rhinitis picture where it's like they have, you know, runny nose when they eat or something or where exercise. it's like very, yeah. yeah, like where it's specific, like situational. Are those patients, do you think about them differently? Or are they still kind of, you know, managed in a similar way? Are they still potentially candidates for procedures and things like that? Yeah. So vasomotor rhinitis, I think is a uh, different animal. Um, I, I usually give patients the ipratropin bromide to try out. And it really depends on how significant their problems are. Frequently it's mixed where they have a, a baseline fairly runny nose and then it's just worse when they eat or something like that. So I kind of leave it up to the patients on whether or not, you know, some people will say, oh, I just use the nasal spray before I go out on a date so that my nose doesn't run in front of my date. And other, and otherwise they tolerate it and manage, manage it fine. But I feel like it depends on how much of a burden it is. And it's, it's kind of a gradient as to how much chronic rhinitis versus vasomotor rhinitis they have. Yeah, that makes sense. And as far as choosing your, or actually, be, I guess before choosing the medical therapies, when you're doing your allergy testing, do you have a preference on whether it's, you know, skin testing or in vitro testing? I usually prefer skin testing. I think it's more sensitive and you can find a little bit more um, specifics on what types of allergens the patient have. And you can follow it up with intradermal testing in that scenario as well. Mm -hmm. But, you know, for some people that potentially can't do skin testing, then I think that in vitro testing is fine. What do you think about patients who have al negative allergy testing, but they come to you and have, you know, seasonal variations in their runny nose? Yeah, I treat them just like they're 
that you have allergic rhinitis. I mean, it's if it's seasonal, there's something out there that, that they just weren't tested for or they had a negative test at that time. But I treat them with the same, you know, intranasal steroids and possibly azelastine um, if they need that. And I, yeah, it's kind of a, it's a difficult thing to say, yeah, you you have you've been diagnosed with non-allergic rhinitis, but you do have an allergy out there. So we're going to treat you like you have allergies. It's just kind of a difficult scenario sometimes. Yeah. I think sometimes patients like have trouble wrapping their head around that because they're like, wait a minute, you, you know, because sometimes because the treatment can be so similar, sometimes I'll slip up and be like, yeah. And you know, how are your, how have your allergies been? Da, da, and they'll remind me be like, remember, I don't have allergies because I tested yeah. negative, right. but it's like, right. I'm like, well, yes, yes. But you know, we're, we're managing you with Flonase and his last and you know, that sort of thing. So yeah. it can be kind of tricky. So, poten- so potentially, I mean, those patients would actually be pretty good candidates for um, an, an office procedure because they don't have the option to get allergy shots or sublingual immunotherapy. So um, some of the more recent studies have shown that patients with allergic rhinitis have a similar benefit to patients with um, with just chronic rhinitis, runny nose, to these procedures. So um, those are actually probably people you should be talking to about potentially doing a procedure like this. Okay. I was just going to say one last question in terms of that initial patient coming to your clinic. Sometimes I feel like the chronic rhinitis diagnosis can be difficult to make in terms of teasing it out from CRS or, you know, because we said it could be four weeks, maybe it's just some some acute sinus infection or something like that. Do you have ways where you clinically kind of say, nope, this is just rhinitis. This isn't necessarily something else going on. Or is that yeah, kind so, of after your exam? Because sometimes the rhinitis diagnosis, not to say it's an exclusionary diagnosis, but because rhinorrhea can be part of, or post-nasal drainage can be part of so many other things. Yeah, yeah post-nasal drip is a tough one, but I think this, the scope is key. I mean, when you do the rigid nasal endoscopy initially, um, I use a three millimeter, 30 degree endoscope, and you can see pretty much everywhere up there. You're looking for any purulence, polyps, or anything like that. And sometimes you can see, you know, clear rhinorrhea or other findings that could k- kind of help you make the diagnosis. But quite honestly, most patients that have chronic rhinitis only, they'll tell you that they don't get sinus infections. Like it's just a constant runny nose that never goes away and it never fluctuates. They never get facial pressure, or pain, or colored. And colored drainage, I think, is one of the, the highlights is you know, when people say, I have post-nasal drip, I always ask them, what color is it? A lot of people will laugh and say, I never look at it. And then I say, well, you, you should consider it um, <laughs> looking at your snot every once in a while. Um, but the piece, the people that have chronic rhinitis, they'll say it's it's always clear, whether it's thick or thin or, or um, other, but it's it never has uh, purulence or yellow green color to it. Because if it did, you would be more concerned that there is sinus infections or Correct. some sort of actual yeah. infectious process. Yeah. And I'm, I'm getting CT scans on most patients as well that, you know, have those type of presentations. So that'll help me rule out any chronic mucosal inflammation as well. And do you spray decongest the nose before you take a look or do you never decongest to take a look or what's your so thoughts I, on that? I used to spray everybody. But then when COVID hit, I stopped just because, you know, I was 
terrified of mucosal atomization of, of the, the COVID virus. So I stopped spraying, but I still needed to scope. And I found that patients really didn't have any change on whether or not they could tolerate the scope or not. So I think the, the key is actually using a small endoscope. So I use the pediatric, the three millimeter, and I equate it to a game of operation that we used to play as children. If you don't, <laughs> if you don't touch the sides and they don't feel it and it doesn't go buzz. So, <laughs> so um, I have stopped spraying patients for pretty much all endoscopies other than post-op debridements. And also, you know, when you don't spray them, they don't have the throat numbness and, and the taste and all, yeah. all that stuff that they frequently complain about. Yeah, it's true. I feel like some patients complain more about the spray than they do about the scope. Yeah. I think it's different with the flexible because uh, the flexible, you, you kind of bump into a lot of things when you're doing that. But the rigid, I think you have a lot more control over. Yeah. And kids, I feel like uh, the spray could sometimes set you back 10 steps because just to get yeah. the spray close to the nose and to take a look yeah. is in itself can be. And then they complain, like Ash said, like, like you guys said, the taste and the that numbness feeling. And, and then by the time you're like, oh, here, I actually need to get my exam now. It's like, are we game over yet? Have I bumped into the sides of the operation? You know, <laughs> yeah, the operation has yeah, a buzz. Right? <laughs> so... <laughs> Before we move on too far, I, I did want to kind of, you, you mentioned the post-nasal drainage patients, and I do think that is a tricky group because, you know, if you, if they're, if the complaint is post-nasal drainage and when you scope them, you don't necessarily see thick drainage kind of coming back from the nose into the throat. What do you make of that? Like, and, and they deny reflux and they say, no, you know, it's coming down. I can, you know, I know that I can feel it. it's coming down from my nose and it drips all day. And at night I feel it and it drips down. It makes me cough and it wakes me up. How do you kind of like take that apart and figure out what's going on? Yeah, that's, it's a very frustrating patient. <laughs> um, you know, the post-nasal drip can come from like about a thousand different sources. So you kind of have to delineate where it's coming from. The I tell patients that the back of the throat is very difficult at figuring out where mucus is coming from, unless you have anatomical knowledge like the three of us. You know? <laughs> uh, but <laughs> the uh, you know doing reflux uh, treatment potentially and and trial there um, to see if if it improves. Um, I also I'll do a hypertrophy bromide challenge for them. So if they are definitive, it's coming from their nose, then. I'll do a one-month trial of 0.06% ipratropin bromide just to see if it benefits them and then see them back in a month. If it doesn't, then I basically tell them it's most likely not um, going to benefit from like a, a procedure and it's probably not coming from your nose. So we can you know, send them off to laryngology to see if there's potentially like a vocal cord issue with a polyp or a nodule or untreated reflux, silent reflux, something like that. And allergies can also potentially do it as well, but it's a little bit longer route to work up the the isolated post-nasal drip patient. Mm -hmm. and, and with your epitropium challenge, you choose that nasal spray as opposed to, you know, Flonase or Azelastine or some other nasal spray because it's an anticholinergic and it yeah. simulates so what would happen if you ablated those nerves or tell, tell me more about that. Yeah. So it actually um, kind of recreates what we would potentially do with a procedure such as Rhinera or Clarifix. It, it uh, 
specifically isolates the posterior nasal nerve um, as an anticholinergic to decrease mucus production and some nasal congestion within the nose. So um, other nasal sprays don't really do that. And luckily, you know, ipratropin bromide is uh, generic, so it's pretty cheap. So what I find is that people that respond to the ipratropin bromide, even just a little response or it was, you know, it goes away in an hour or something like that, but they do have a response. I find that they have a much higher likelihood of Ryanair working on them. What I usually tell them is I, for patients that respond to ipratropin bromide, they'll have about an 80% chance of improvement with a procedure such as Ryanair. And of that, they'll improve anywhere from 60 to 100%. However, if they don't respond to ipratropin bromide and they're, they're dedicated this is coming from the nose it drops down to about a 40 to 60 percent improvement with a with a Ryanair so it's not zero but it helps me kind of set expectations for patients on um, if we were to do a procedure what kind of a potential response they would have and that's actually kind of a it's a change in mindset of a lot of surgeons so a lot of surgeons will say I'm only going to do a procedure if it's going to fix it 100%, you know, a septal deviation or removal of polyp or something like that. And we kind of gauge ourselves on, did we fix the problem or did we not? And when you start dealing with chronic rhinitis and um, these in-office procedures, you have to be okay that treating something very good is actually is enough. And that's, that's the end result is that you're going to help it get better. It may not be 100%. But you can actually make things better. So it's a change in mindset and thinking of the surgeon. That's a good point because it's some of it's what we're doing is quality of life, you know. Yeah. And if we can make the quality of life better, and it's not like you have an alternative to quote fix it. So it is an improvement, which is which is good. Right. And <laughs> yeah. you know, we we used to do videonderectomies for patients for this, and I've done a couple of those in my life, and. The dry eye that you get from um, hitting the branch to the, lac the, the lacrimal nerve is it can be debilitating <laughs> for patients. You know, it gives them something else to complain about. But it's uh, it's a tough surgery, and it can be potentially pretty detrimental to the patient. So I think this is probably a good segue to to start kind of talking about these procedures that we have available now to be able to offer patients who, you know, like like you said, have tried the epitropium bromide and it works. And now they're like, wow, you know, this works, but I sure would love to not have to give this to myself three times a day or four times a day. <laughs> you know, the frequent dosing can be difficult. So can yeah. you talk about the different options that we have now? Yeah. So um, the first product out there was Clarifix, which uses cryoablation to freeze the posterior nasal nerve. And it works pretty well. I did start using that initially, and um, I had decent results. However, the post-treatment headache, the ice cream headache, is it's significant. It um, They quote it about 17%, but I find it's more like 40. So I, uh, it, it, I have to prepare patients for that. And it also, they, they form a crust at the very back of the, the uh, in the sphenopalatine region where you do the treatment. 
And that crust can sometimes cause post-nasal drip and post-nasal drainage as it's healing. So it's actually causing a different source for the problem that you're trying to treat. But more recently, the Ryanair has come out and it uses radiofrequency ablation to treat the nerve a little bit more aggressively in, in my hands. So I find that you actually get a little bit better results with the Ryanair because you're treating um, the nerve in multiple different spots. And you can also treat the inferior turbinate itself, which the Clarifix you weren't really able to. So I find that you get more bang for your buck and patients actually have better responses with the Ryanair. And what is your protocol or, or your um, kind of pathway to saying, okay, this is this is a good option. Let's talk about moving forward with that. Is it you know, what is your, your trial? You do just a, a month of the protropium and then it's like, okay, this potentially is an option or does it matter if other things are going on or, you know, what is your kind of assessment, especially for those patients who come in and already know that they want it and they're like, you know, yeah. I'm here yeah. for the Ryanair procedure. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I think there's, it kind of falls into the two, two different categories, the people that respond really well and that's usually a slam dunk and they're they're willing to do it i'm willing to do it and also you know stepping back a little bit you have to assess the patient with a scope to make sure they're a good candidate if they have a horrible septal deviation and you feel like you can't get to the location you need to and the like the sphenopalatine region at the posterior attachment of the middle turbinate they may not be a candidate for anything unless you take them to the operating room but for patients that have good anatomy and have good response, I think those patients, all of them will probably end up getting a, a procedure like this. The patients that don't have great response and or have bad anatomy, we have to talk about the pros and cons of, you know, can, if we try this procedure, there's a possibility that I can't get back to where I need to. There's also a possibility that, you know, it, it's not going to fix your problem. However, we're at the end of the line here for your, your issue. So there's no other steps. And this step of Ryanair, it's not going to burn a bridge. It's not going it, to, like, recovery is minimal. So if you want to try this procedure, I'm happy to do it. Um, we just have to kind of set our, our expectations that there's a possibility it might not fix your problem. But there's no other steps. So if you want to do something, mm -hmm. this is it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. You said that it can also address the turbinate a little bit. So uh, explain to me. So you're going in, you have a, a wand or a paddle, right? The handpiece. It's a, a stylus. Yeah. A stylus. Okay. Yeah. And then it, you're putting it, as you said, kind of right below the posterior attachment of the middle turbinate where the yep. nerve would be, be. And then you said three places. So kind of, can you describe to me in detail sort of where and then... You said you're addressing the turbinate. So does it also shrink the turbinate? And are you just putting yeah, it on top so, of the mucosa? Yeah. So um, with the, there's actually a newer stylus that came out, the Ryanair 2.0. It has um, an offset to it. So it's not just flat at the end. It actually kind of tilts back a little bit. So it'll fit into um, the sphenopalatine region just at the attachment of the posterior middle turbinate pretty well. So you start there. And it's also the, the tip of the stylus is a little bit smaller, so it fits a little bit easier back there. So you start there, you do, uh, I usually typically do, um, you know, three to five treatments, just kind of walking anterior as you do it and then step down and kind of 
walking interiors, you're doing that, and then you follow it down to the posterior aspect of the inferior turbinate, and you can actually do some treatments on the inferior turbinate as you come at, come out. So the newer wand, you can do a total of 22 treatments. So um, that's kind of the max. But, so you could do 11 on each side. And um, some people will actually do treat the inferior turbinate because it it does shrink it back. So it can allow you to uh, visualize and find the posterior nasal nerve site a little bit better. So you could treat that inferior turbinate initially, and I'll do that sometimes, to actually see the posterior nasal nerve area a little bit better. And the cool thing about this is that there's no incisions. So minimal bleeding from this, you're just kind of pushing tissue out of the way. And it it helps the patients with nasal obstruction because you're actually reducing the inferior turbinate and also helps with visualization during the procedure. So can you talk about your clinic setup and, you know, maybe a little bit about your anesthesia protocol and how you kind of get these patients ready for the procedure in the office? When I first started doing procedures in the office, I actually started with inferior turbinate reduction, submucous resection of inferior turbinates, which I never really learned in residency or fellowship. I just kind of made up and it went really, really well. Um, you know, you're actually causing, you know, you're using the uh, submucous, um, the microdebrider blade to remove some tissue. So you have a little bit of bleeding. Then I stepped up to doing in-office sinus surgeries, which I still do occasionally. And I would do all of those procedures in my procedure room. Then my next step was actually using, like uh, treating the nasal valve with five air and using that instead of submucous resection for inferior turbinates because I get pretty good results with minimal bleeding for that. And then that kind of segued into doing Clarifix and or Ryanair. And I actually now do those procedures just in the regular exam room. Um, for multiple reasons. It's it's a fairly easy procedure. Uh, patients are comfortable with it. They've already been there for, with their initial assessment. And it really helps with the flow of my day. So I'm not using up a dedicated procedure time or a dedicated procedure room. It's just kind of fit into the day. And I've trained my office staff. My medical assistant will actually do the initial application of the tetracaine afrin pledgets. So They'll do that, let them sit for 15 to 20 minutes. And then when I go in, I do my injection and I use just straight up lidocaine. So I do not use epinephrine in this uh, because it causes the tachycardia and anxiety and you really don't need it because it doesn't bleed very much. I use a, uh, a RAN needle. I don't know if you're familiar with a, a reinforced anesthetic needle. It's a very long needle. It's a 27 gauge tip with an like a outer sheath on it. So when you do the injection, it doesn't spray as much of the lidocaine down posterior um, oropharynx and nasopharynx. So I bend that even more than the initial bend to actually get to the location. Wow. And in that injection, is that just right at the location, just one spot right where you are going to treat and then it kind of blanches and, you know, um, goes to that whole area or do you do more than one poke? And then you I usually do one or two depending on, um, I want to see that the, the blanching. So the bleb is important. It helps with the conduction of the energy for the uh, Reiner wand itself. So you want to see that. And it also helps with, you know, of course, patient tolerance of the procedure. So if I don't get it well on the first one, then I'll do a second one. I will also mention that that injection can be kind of hard. <laughs> so for, for some 
you know, people that maybe aren't comfortable doing those injections, I usually recommend that they start trying it in the operating room, you know, when they're doing sinus surgery. It's a little bit hard to hold that needle in the correct location to actually insert it and not run into everything. You don't want to do that while a patient's awake. So do it while they're asleep, practice it so you can get to the correct spot to do those injections. Yeah, that's good advice. And it's even harder with a spinal me- spinal needle compared to the RAN needle. I mean, the, the RAN needle does yeah. help a lot because it's more rigid. It doesn't yeah. flop around <laughs> yeah. in the nose as much. <laughs> Yeah. Your, are your um are your pledges what what percent is it separate solutions of afrin and tetracaine or you have a, a compounded afrin tetracaine gel or what what's actually on your pledges? So I just use a 50/50 mix of 4% tetracaine and afrin. You want to make sure you ring those out. So if you don't then they get the horrible um throat numbness and they start clearing the throat and coughing. It's just miserable. So make sure you ring them out really well. And as I put them in, I've actually taught my medical assistants this too, is you kind of bend the, the very distal portion of the pledget to try to sneak it up into the middle meatus as you put it in. It's not 100% effective, but as you do that, if you bend it laterally, it'll actually sneak up into the location where you're trying to get to a little bit easier. Mm-hmm. And I do two of them, you know, let two them sit for 15 side. to 20 minutes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And you keep your patients, do you keep your patients sitting up? Yeah. It's, uh, I, I, they're mostly sitting up, not laying flat. I just, that's how I scope patients. And that's kind of my setup in the office. So I was just going to say your pledgets are your standard sinus pledgets with the strings that you use for sinus surgery. Yep. And the Ryanair device, it's using the same console as the Viver, right? Correct. Yep. But it's different though. Like so when you when you plug it in, the machine knows that this is for Ryanair and when you hit the pedal, it's doing the time cycle that you would for Ryanair and the amount of energy. Yeah. So uh, when you plug it in, there's actually like a microchip in the want like the, the cord itself that will tell it whether it's a Ryanair or a Viver. And the Ryanair is just twelve second treatments. So when you do in the treatment, it goes it goes very rapidly and it goes up to I think sixty one degrees Celsius. So it's temperature controlled. So it doesn't get extremely hot back there. But it's the same unit. So if people are doing Viver in the office, it's very easy to incorporate the Ryanair as well because you just need to buy the, the separate stylus and plug it into the same unit. But you would never use the, use the, sty- like if you were out of one stylus, you would never use the other stylus just in, in a different location because it is a different um, amount of energy and a different time cycle and all those things, right? Yeah. And it's also different size. I mean, the the length of the Viver is not far enough to get back to the location that you need to get to. And the, the newer wand, the uh, Ryanair 2.0, you can actually bend it a little bit easier and it fits um further it fits better posteriorly um with the smaller um diameter of the the shaft as well anything else for the procedure part of it before we move on to kind of post-op care i was kind of mentioning previously how i'll do the initial endoscopy to see if patients are going to be a good, good candidate based on anatomy um with the more recent changes that they made with the new wand I'm actually finding that I can sneak this newer one 
into more smaller areas at, at the back of the nose. So if they have like a, a large posterior spur or even a significant septal deviation, just because of the size of this this new one, you can actually get in there and, and treat the location you want to. So I'm doing more and more procedures that previously maybe I couldn't because I, I couldn't get the wand to the correct location. Mm-hmm. And do you... um. Do you use a pediatric 30-degree rigid scope for these as well? I actually use a zero for these because, well, I I like to have the light cord going off towards me, and the zero, you can do that. 30, you can't really do that. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and can you do this in the operating room, or do you, like, for your patients who you just maybe, or, you know, you ha- every, every now and then you have a patient that's like, put me out. You can't, you can't, I can't <laughs> yeah. even have a scope. Like you're going to knock me out. <laughs> yeah, I, I do. I do um, these procedures in the operating room as well. And, you know, for the people that potentially might need a septoplasty to gain access, I'll do it in the, in those scenarios. Um, I've also been doing <laughs> like some of the other patients and uh, from other ENTs in my group have caught wind of of this procedure, like with pamphlets or whatever. So I'll actually do combination procedures. So like if they're getting oh, okay. like a, a rhinoplasty or something, but they also have post-nasal drip, I'll just jump mm-hmm. in and do a, a rhinair right before they get their, their rhinoplasty. So it's a good adjunct for other procedures as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wonder if the um, if the tracked balloon would help with your deviated patients. Like I've used it for, um, it's like a. Are you familiar with it? it's an eclairant yeah. balloon that kind yeah. of yeah. helps kind of push things out of the way. I've used it for my like eustachian tube dilation patients that where they have like a a spur or a deviation to that side, and I need to get back to the nasopharynx and I can't. So uh, along the floor of the nose, mm-hmm. um, of course, there's quite a bit of like inferior turbinate out fracture that happens as well as kind of pushing that septum over. But I wonder if it would help you gain access for this. Um, I mean, it is, it's a little bit higher up in a slightly different location, but I don't know, something yeah, to think about I, for your office I patients. Think it, I think it probably could. Um, the only issue I have with that is when you push it from one side, it goes to the other side. So you potentially can cause a nasal obstruction on the opposite side of where you're doing the track balloon. So it, but yeah, if, I think it would probably help gain access. What's your post-op, you know, do they need to be doing any saline or is there any post-op care and then sort of, you know, that immediate, excuse me, post-op stuff and then how long it lasts for, that kind of stuff? So actually one of the cool things about this is there's minimal post-op care necessary. They don't have to do saline? Come on. I mean, Stan, you're they, a rhinologist. They, Everybody does saline they, afterwards. <laughs> yes, they have to do saline. <laughs> um, I tell them they can if they want to, but, but it like if it, that's not something they need. I to don't do. think it really helps, other than getting the like a, a little bit of the blood that might have um, occurred from the procedure. You know, you can do it for the first couple of days. I will sometimes send them home with some nasal spray just in case they have a nosebleed. Um, there's always that concern that, you know, you could cause a, a bleed from this phenopalatine artery or something like that. But I've, I've never actually seen that myself. I didn't take care of a patient that maybe someone else did, but uh, I didn't cause it myself. The, I usually see patients about a month out afterwards. And one of the things we, we talk about how is how 
for whatever reason, it, it sometimes takes a little while for them to have a significant response from this procedure. So I'll see them about a month out. And usually at that point, if they're, if they're going to have a, a good response, it's actually kind of fluctuating. So they'll have one day that's good, one day that's bad, and then kind of alternate. And I'll talk to them about how that's actually a good response. And usually at about two months or so, they'll notice that there's even more uh, improvement. And that's happened for most of my patients is it'll kind of fluctuate initially and then get better after about uh, six to eight weeks. And I also find that in that interim, they can use the ipratropin bromide as well. And combination of the Ryanair plus the ipratropin bromide usually works very effectively. So maybe they don't have to use it like once a day or when they use it, it lasts for um, much longer than it previously did. And at what point do you tell them, okay, this is we're kind of, this is as good as it is going to get, you know, and this is kind of the final outcome we can expect. So for most patients, I'll just see them at about one month and then potentially see them at two months if there's any concerns. And I usually tell them that by about three to four months, that's, that's usually the kind of end result that they're going to be getting. Quite honestly, I just don't see patients back after that um, very frequently, just because I think they're they're happy and they're mm-hmm. you know they don't really need any further treatment. There's been um, some studies showing that this treatment lasts at least two years. Um, it's only been out for a little bit longer than that, so the studies are ongoing. Um, similar to like Vivera that. They keep on coming out with a new study every year to show that it's still working and currently it's about about four years out. So I think they'll probably continue to do that, but it has been shown that it has long lasting results. And then at the same time, you know, say 10, 20 years down the road, it comes back. They realize how easy this procedure is and they'll just come back and we'll get a touch up. So So have you had to do any revisions yet or is that just so rare? I've had to do a couple revisions on the Clarifix, and what I've actually done is transitioned over to doing the Ryanair on those patients just to kind of switch it up. But usually what happens is they'll have a really good response, and I've most of them have then subsequently gotten COVID for whatever reason, and then it like just totally screws up their, their posterior nasal nerve, and they start having running nose again. So it, I, I can't really explain the pathophysiology of that, but I've had probably about five patients in that scenario. We just do it again and it works the second time as well. Hmm. So they were doing well and then they got COVID and then their nose started running like before and then you do yeah. it, you repeat the procedure and then they're good again. Yeah. And huh. I'm not going to do a study on that. I really don't want to. <laughs> but you don't want to be the expert for, <laughs> get the, right. on the for COVID, COVID rhinitis. No, no, no. <laughs> uh, one, one question for you. So we talked about how with the uh, device you can address the rhinitis uh, with a post-nasal nerve. With a, um, but you also said, hey, you know, you can kind of reduce some of the posterior inferior turbinate with it as well. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Does that, so for the patients that have significant nasal obstruction with their rhinitis and they have, you know, big turb- inferior turbinates, can you just then use the wand and bring it anterior with the 11 options that you have? Or are there patients where you're like, hey, I need to actually do some I, more, I don't know if you want to say more, or a different device that's more specific for inferior turbinate reduction? Is the, I guess my question is, is the device like an adjunct to kind of give you a little bit of, or does it actually also do 
turbulent re uh, reduction as well. So initially, when I was, was um, doing these procedures, I would do like a submucous reception as well um, as for those patients that have inferior turbinate hypertrophy as well as the chronic rhinitis. But then I realized that the uh, Ryanair wand itself actually does a pretty good reduction. And you can use the, the multiple treatments along the entire length of the inferior turbinate. It zaps it pretty good. And postoperatively, I have difficulty finding difference between the patients that I did the submucous resection versus the Ryanair wand itself. And then you're actually just using the same wand, so you don't have to open up a second one and, and eat that cost. So I would say if patients have continued nasal obstruction afterwards, you could offer them a submucous resection as well, but I haven't ran into that scenario, quite honestly. And this could potentially be for your allergic rhinitis patients as well. That's actually one of the interesting scenarios is I started doing this for the chronic rhinitis patient that maybe was non-allergic. But more recently, I've been adding on this as an adjunct for allergy patients. So even if they test positive with, uh, with skin testing, I give this as an option for maybe a little bit more immediate relief of some of their symptoms, the nasal obstruction, the runny nose. And I've had quite a few patients that are interested in doing this because they don't want to wait the six to 12 months for their shots to start working. So it's kind of like a jump start to getting their allergy therapy uh, ramped up a little quicker. And it also opens up this entirely new avenue of patients. So like all those patients that we previously dumped into the allergy bucket that we very rarely see, they just see their allergist or your allergy nurses. You could actually send this out as an option for those patients themselves and get those patients back in to potentially do a procedure on. So it, it could potentially open up a pretty large volume of patients to be seen. Does it uh, last the same amount of time, you think, in terms of does it help for the same amount of time as your, for the two years, potentially, as your non-allergic rhinitis? I would actually think it would probably potentially last longer just because you're also doing allergy therapy at the same time. So I, I just think that it, it ramps things up a little quicker and patients get a more immediate response and then they have subsequent allergy therapy that's treating their ongoing symptoms. So... Yeah, that's very interesting. Uh, as we kind of wrap things up, any um, final thoughts or pearls that you want to leave our listeners? This is an excellent tool to treat something that previously was not very easily treated. And it's similar to like the nasal valve. People never looked for the nasal valve until they actually had a treatment for it. And now we I, I do the modified coddle on pretty much every patient to try to find patients that would potentially benefit. And the runny nose patient has always been kind of a patient that nobody wants to see because there's not really therapy for. But now it's a patient that has a pretty good therapy that's an in-office procedure that patients can benefit pretty significantly from. So I just... I think it's a, an awesome opportunity to um, introduce this uh, treatment for patients that previously had no significant treatment options. Yeah, it's, it's exciting to be able to have something to offer for sure. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Stan. If our listeners wanted to contact you, reach out to you for any other questions, uh, are you on social media or website or anything like that? Yeah, so um, I have a, a Facebook page, uh, Kansas City Sinus, or you can reach out to me just uh, through my website, or um, I'm happy to you know, talk to anybody um, that's referred through you guys or the local 
Aaron Rep usually can reach me and get a hold of me if there's any questions. Awesome. Sounds great. Thanks for taking the time. It was fun. Thank you, Stan. Yeah, thank you. It's been great. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan. Our audio team lead is Karen Yen with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhorter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Taylor's version Hess. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.